Guys, it's Last Mask Sunday. Woo! How are you guys doing today? Awesome. Great. So good to see you guys here. And um, as we get started, before I get started, I do want to um, make a special introduction. And I know he's going to hate this, but he's not my boss anymore. So, uh, joining us from California, I talk often of Creekside in my time in California and Pastor Terry. I just wanted to point out uh, Pastor Terry and Trina Riley over here joining us uh, this weekend. So, if, you, if you'd like to ask him about how many times I messed up in the past 12 years working for him, um, he won't have a single story for you, so don't, don't bother. Totally flawless time in ministry. Um, but just so glad that they got to join us this weekend. And, um, you know, there's... They're not, uh, Terry and Trina, they're not just, they weren't just my bosses, um, they were my friends. And um, you know, I love the fact that we've got to do so much life together, and even though life has now taken me and Stephanie away from California, we still have this great friendship, and I appreciate and love you guys. Thank you very much. And um, he did beat me in fantasy football this year. <laughs> he got the trophy. Sad to say, um, I think Avery was more upset about it than I was. I was sad. Avery cried, so you can tell her that when you talk to her. Um, open up your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 18. We're going to uh, finish up our series on the Always God today. And we, we talked about some fun things. I hope you've had a, a, you know, a good time understanding as we unpack things God always does for us. We talked about how he's always speaking to us, how he always hears us, how he always sees and how he cares about what we're going through. And um, today we're going to unpack another one. But before we dive in, I want to talk about um, a show that, that kind of captivated mine and my wife's life for a while. And uh, this, this show still wrote, shows reruns, but they're not making episodes anymore. But have, have you guys ever seen or broken something at home? Now, I, I should have, when I became a parent, bought stock in superglue. Because I've gone through more superglue now in the past, you know, my time as a parent than I ever did in my entire life. Specifically with Avery. You know, she brings me broken things all the time. And she knows now, Dad, I broke this. Do you have superglue? And she knows right away what I'm going to go to. And unfortunately, just recently, um, the dog got a hold of one of her toys. And uh, superglue saved it once, but not twice. <laughs> the second time it was done. And, and she, she was totally okay. You know, we told her we'd get her another one. And it's one of those things where I picked up the toy and I looked at our dog. I was like, Nala. She immediately goes to her back, puts her legs up. She knew what she did. But we don't like broken things typically. We like to see if we can fix things. And all of us, I'm pretty sure, have things, certain things that we know how to fix. And we have a specialty. For me, mine is computers. If a computer breaks, I can fix a computer. I can typically navigate and work through, figure out what's going on. Not a Mac. I don't like Macs, but PCs. I can fix them really well. But if something in my house breaks, i got to call somebody. I cannot fix broken things in the house. I'm not a handyman. But one of the shows that I love to watch about fixing things was on HGTV. It was Fixer Upper. I love to watch Fixer Upper. And the point of Fixer Upper, the whole point of the show was restore homes. They would come together and they would restore homes. And at the height of this show, it would have 5 million viewers a week. Now, for, for cable television, this was the second highest rated show behind only one other cable show, The Walking Dead. Which is funny. So America loved to watch things get built up and love things get destroyed. Right? You got both ends of the spectrum. But the uh, Fixer Upper was a huge show, and people fell in love quickly with Chip and Joanna Gaines, right? If you've seen the two of them working together, they're just they're fun to watch. Um, I love that they love Jesus as well, and that was part of their story and how they helped people find their homes. And actually, Waco, Texas, where they would do most of their work, is now a destination point for people. People didn't even know Waco existed until Fixer Upper did. And now it's a point of reference that people want to go see. But the premise was simple, right? A couple buys a home. Needs to get built, needs to get fixed up. Chip and Joanna come in, and they would work their magic. 
Chip would lead the construction and the comedy, and Joanna would lead all of the, the concepts and often hassle Chip for goofing off on the job. And of course, the climax of the show that took place in the last segment when there was the, the great reveal. And if you've seen the show, you know what the line is, right? They put the big billboards in front of the house and the couple can't see it, and they say, are you ready to see your fixer-upper? Then they pull it aside and you get to see their reactions and just the revelation of this home is so cool to see. And I love watching the buyer spaces. That's one of the highlights of the show, right? You see, it, it doesn't show the house right away, it shows their face when they see the house. And you get to see just the revelation and the joy and excitement when they see what was their house into now what is their house. One of my favorite episodes involved a house they dubbed the Scary Farm. And I'm actually, this is one of the, if you look up Fixer Upper on YouTube, I think this is one of the highlights of the, the videos that they have. They have this farm, and when they come to this farm, the, the farm wasn't much to look at, but the couple loved the land. It had so much land, it saw so much opportunity on top of what they saw in the house. And if you look at the outside, there was some rotted pieces, but that was part of the show, right? We're going to buy this, it's going to get fixed up. Little did they know that when they actually went inside, not after they bought the house, I mean, after they bought the house, but when they really went inside and started looking in the walls, there were beehives in the walls. And so what was a little rot on the outside was totally rotted inside the walls on the inside. This turned into a major overhaul. And of course, in dramatic fashion, the episode made it look like, we don't know if we're going to have money, we don't know if we're going to be able to do it, but they did. And they were able to fix this house, but they didn't initially see on the inside what it looked like on the outside. When it was done, you never would been able to tell that the house was on its way out. It was on its way towards destruction. They were so happy that something so, what ended up being so hideous in places, ended up being something so beautiful and something so wonderful to see. I thought a lot about that show this week as I was looking into this passage, because what we're going to talk about this morning has to do with restoration. And Chip and Joanna were in the, the restoration business, and they took things that people thought, there's no way this can get restored into what we want it to be. But they did. And we're going to see throughout scripture that the God we serve, he is in the restoring business. God is in the restoring business. He takes the broken. God will take the marred. Those are on this journey to destruction. There are some that would say, we're going to see in our passage, it uses the word spoiled in the, in the context of working with clay. But he takes these people that are spoiled, the marred, the broken, the, the blemished, and he turns it into something so beautiful. And we see that all throughout scripture. He forms it. He molds it. And he says, it is good. So if you turn to Jeremiah 18, we're going to start in verse 1. And it says this. The word of God that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So in this passage, we see, we see God getting Jeremiah's attention. And he wants to teach him a valuable lesson about how it looks to get people's lives and how God molds people's lives. And this is a very real life observation for Jeremiah because working with clay was a very common thing. So he's using something very practical, very, very much this is what you see. You see clay stuff all the time. And I believe there's ceramic and clay pots that are still buy two, buy one, get two free on that store on Meridian. It's been that way, I know, since we spied on you guys a couple years ago. But it's something common. Clay is common still to this day. 
And we see this analogy of clay being used. And the message he's communicating is very simple, actually. He's saying, the potter has the power over the clay. The potter has the power. When the clay is sitting there spinning, the potter has all the control of what's going to happen to this. Is it going to get built up? Is it going to get torn down? The potter is in total control. Whatever shape it's going to take is the shape that the potter is going to make this take shape in. The clay doesn't get to control itself there. It's all subject to the potter. Now, I have some Play-Doh. I do want the Play-Doh. Yes. All right. Now, Play-Doh. This can either be something really cool or the bane of your existence as a parent. You know, this used to be one color, right? But we have Play-Doh. Now, with, with Play-Doh, it's fun because you get to make whatever you want with Play-Doh. Now, when, when it comes out, I mean, everyone has the basics, right? What can you make with Play-Doh? You can roll it up and you can easily make a Play-Doh ball. Everyone can make the Play-Doh ball. Everyone can make the Play-Doh pancake. <laughs> Flatten that out and everyone's got their Play-Doh pancake. Every kid is obsessed with the Play-Doh worm or the Play-Doh snake, right? It's just, it gets built, it's easy, everyone can do fun things with Play-Doh. And those are the basics. And now they have all the tools and crafty crazy things to make Play-Doh something really, really cool out of. But it's, it's almost like a rite of passage with Play-Doh users to make the ball, the pancake, and the snake. Every person does it, and all the colors end up becoming a hodgepodge of not the color it was before. But the idea is you can mold it into something really, really cool. It doesn't have to be something you know, basic. It can be something amazing. So check out some of these pictures of what people have done with Play-Doh. First, we'll start with the, the classic Play-Doh pancakes, right? You make your pancakes. Now, what's funny is they all start as that color, but you know when they go back to their containers, that's going to be one mashed color in four different containers. But we have Play-Doh pancakes. Really, really simple. Everyone can do this. Now look at the second one. Starts to get a little more intricate. All right, you got some Play-Doh fruit. You got some, you know, the eyes and the mouths and the sprouts and and lots of fun. Again. Those will never go back into the same container. No one ever says, put Play-Doh away. Let me take off the black piece and the black piece. And it's just mash, can, there it goes. Or um, if you're, you're my kids, Play-Doh all over the floor that the vacuum eats up. You know, you'll never see that Play-Doh again because it's just bits and pieces and it's gone. Or it gets dry and crumbly. Check out the next one. A little, little bit more. You know, we got the bugs now. Ladybugs and bees. And what's great is when you, when you look at some of these, these weren't even done by the machines that do the molds. These were just people making these. But the last one's going to blow you away. The last sculpture's going to blow you away. Check out this Play-Doh sculpture. Yes. <laughs> that is awesome, right? Look at all that Play-Doh put together. Now, how would you feel if I told you that this Play-Doh was made by a man named Jeff Koons in 2018, and this Play-Doh sculpture was that tall, and it was worth $20 million? You'll never look at Play-Doh the same, right? If you tell your kids that, they're going to ask you to invest a lot in Play-Doh. $20 million, and that's, just, I, I, don't, I didn't do the research on why he built it that way. I just saw the, the headline, $20 million Play-Doh sculpture. I was like, wow. Never would you think something so invaluable could be molded into something that still looks invaluable, right? But it's so valuable. You know, you, two ways you can look at that. You can look at it as like, wow, that's amazing, or wow, people that appraise art are insane. <laughs> But either way, something that was not supposed to be something great, something that people look at as just something insignificant, turned into something for some that was very, very significant. Now, if you want to transcend past Play-Doh into something more moldable that gets more permanent, we move past Play-Doh and we get into the clay, right? 
clay to conform to what the potter's designing. Clay doesn't just all of a sudden get on the spinner, here's a block, whoop, now we have a vase. It's something that gets reworked and smashed and molded, and then you think it's coming up, and then it gets smashed down again. There's a process to make it. See, there's, there's lumps in clay. As the, as the potter starts going, those go, and there can be one little lump somewhere, but that means that whole side has to come back down. It has to be reworked. It has to be remarred, because that's actually referred to as a spoil in the clay. So you could say this whole thing is spoiled until it's remade. And it's a long, lengthy process. If you ever watch someone make it, it, it can almost be mesmerizing watching that spin and watching them the dip the hands in the water and the whole process happen. It looks like they're constantly destroying something that's perfect. Then they smash it down and then make it again. They smash it make it again until they finally look at it and they say, this now is ready. I think this is an incredible picture of how God works in our lives. So much molding and so much restructuring and so much reshaping of what happens in us. And I want to make a few points about us and clay that we see from Jeremiah. I think the first is that we need to understand all of us, we are all broken. Every single one of us is broken. And I'm going to be using the word broken as a synonym for the word of what it says in verse 4, was spoiled. We're all broken. We're all spoiled. This is exactly what that word means. Jeremiah ends up using the same word in chapter 13 when God gives him instructions on a belt. God says, I want you to uh, bury this belt and then later dig it up. In 13 of verse 7, Jeremiah describes this belt. He digs it up. He says, this is ruined. This belt is spoiled. This is good for nothing. It is useless or broken. Is there anything worse than trying to find something good out of something that's broken? And you have something that you're like, this was created for a purpose, but now it's broken. That's how Jeremiah viewed this belt. That's how sometimes people see that, pick that, uh, that clay pot getting remolded and say, now it's broken. Or take this, for example. I have an iPad here. I've got an iPad, had this one for a while. <clears throat> now, sometimes it happens with your phones, you know, you're using it, or the kids use it, and then you have one of those moments where you're like, oh, you drop your iPad. There's the heart, the stopping moment, right? Even with your phone, it's like, oh no, oh no, oh no. It's good. It's good. Everything's fine. And then you realize you didn't buy Apple Care, so you got to be really careful with your iPhone or your iPad. And then the kids get it. And then they use their Play-Doh. And you say, it's time to clean up, kids. And they, they do it again. And you pick it up, and it's fine. Then you have the day where a kid is playing with something. They're playing with something. And they say, Mom, Dad, I have this, I have this. And they, they take your iPad and... That is a durable iPad. I did not expect that to happen this morning, right? There it is. There it is. Then you have the iPad. Is there anything worse than seeing a broken piece of technology that you can't use anymore? Now, some of you would say, that screen can be fixed, but I don't know. There's some colors in there that I think now it's past the screen. But there's almost nothing worse than seeing something that was designed to be used for something good broken and not be used anymore. Now, just to quell your hearts a little bit, this iPad is pretty much a brick. It can't do anything anymore. It's at least 15 years old. It can't update. It took, it took like 10 hours to charge it 10%. All right, so this thing, is, this thing is bad. Yeah, that iPad is no good. So I didn't just buy an iPad to waste it for today. Sorry. <laughs> But sometimes things get spoiled and we feel like it's worthless, it's broken, it's beyond repair. And we, we've, we've put these standards into our lives, but we need to understand that when it, when it comes to being broken, we can all be broken spiritually at points. 
We all come to elements in our lives where we are broken, where we can feel useless, torn down, broken, not able to be used. But that's where God gets to work. Put this standard into our life. We're broken spiritually, but this is what sin does to us. It, it, it makes, it corrupts us, it mars us. It, it starts to, to work, work and tear away at that relationship that we're building with God. It beyond something that we can do physically to repair it. If I were to keep smashing this and break it and bend it, it gets to the point eventually where there's nothing more I can do for it. Not even a repair shop could do for it. They say, it's done. Sometimes we can feel like that in our, with our lives. And the truth is, that is our lives. We get to a point, there's nothing we can do for our lives. We can't fix it. We can't take away the sin. We can't mold that clay pot to be what it's supposed to be. God gets to do that molding. God gets to do that healing. God gets to do that repairing. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's use Jeremiah's term in there. Let's say this, For all are spoiled and fall short of the glory of God. The only solution for clay, when a potter is using it, the only way to get that spoiled blemish out is to get reworked, is to get mashed down, is to get molded into something that it doesn't even look like it was supposed to anymore, but that's all the process of making it something absolutely beautiful. The solution to sin, to our brokenness in our lives, is to submit ourselves to the potter's hands. To say that this is not, I'm not trying to do this anymore. I'm submitting my life to you, God. I'm going to let you mold me. I'm going to let you make me. I'm going to let you, even if it means you're going to crumble this part of my life down, I know it's because you're going to build it back up into something so good. Let's talk about the context of this passage in Jeremiah for a little bit. There's, there's a lot of good passages that come from Jeremiah, but I think sometimes a lot of the context gets lost in the mix of what these people were going through when Jeremiah was talking to him. He was a prophet. He proclaimed a message for 40 years. For 40 years, he was talking about judgment coming to the people of Judah. It's not an uplifting message. He says Jerusalem's going to fall to the Babylonians, that God's chosen people are going to be carried into exile. That is super encouraging, right? Someone comes into your house and says all the time, hey, your house is coming down, you're getting arrested, you're getting taken captive, 40 years, it's going to be bad. And you're like, hey, come inside, you want to have a meal? You know, that, that's not really your response. In fact, we probably can all think of someone in, in, in our lives or whether it's, you know, it's in our orbit somewhere where you're like, oh man, here they come. It's going to be a, a downer conversation today. It's going to be someone that, that you know, it's, it's just going to give me a doom and gloom. And that typically isn't something that attracts people to you. So now you have this prophet of God for 40 years preaching doom and gloom. And people are probably just at this point like, oh, here comes Jeremiah again. I know, I know, we're bad, we're bad, they're coming, they're coming. Well, guess what? It was bad and they came. And Israel got overthrown. He was called the weeping prophet. But the reality is because what he was professing broke even his heart. It wasn't something he was looking forward to either. It's important to note the object lesson that God gives him refers to his people and this covenant relationship that he's in being the potter in the clay. The covenant required people to be worked on. It wasn't just you were there. It required being worked on. And, and I make this point because I want us to know that when we, be, when we are in the process of being remade by God, being remade doesn't mean that you've arrived. When God's working on you, it doesn't mean God goes in, now I'm finished, on to the next person. It's a long process. It's a lifelong process. This, this walk we do with God is something that we constantly go through. It's a journey. It's a life with him, not a destination to be achieved. It's an ongoing path, an ongoing process in a relationship with him working. Jeremiah 18.6, revisiting that, he said, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. I love that. 
We are the clay constantly in the potter's hands. Salvation is when God's shaping work starts in our lives, not when it stops. Salvation is when it starts, not when it stops. And like the people of Judah over time, even those of us in a relationship with God, it's, sometimes we look at scripture and we say, but how did they mess up? I mean, they had God. They, they had prophets. They had miracles right there. How did they mess up? But you know, just like them today, we still can be in this process and decide, I'm going to step out for a second and start doing our own thing. We still can, can choose to do sin and disobedience. That's a choice that we get to make. We can still make a decision that all of a sudden will cause a lump, a blemish, or a spoil in that, in that process where God gets to go, and there's that lump, let's do this now and start working on things. We get to choose those decisions, just like they chose in Scripture. And it's at that point we learn the same valuable message, message that Jeremiah did. The clay is marred, clay is broken, clay is spoiled, but clay can be reworked. Clay can be remade. Our lives can be broken. Our lives can be spoiled. Our lives can be marred, but our lives can be remade. Our lives can be reworked, and our lives can be made restored. But only God gets to do the restoring. Only God restores the broken. Only the potter has the power of the clay. Only he has the power to do those things. Restore, rework, remake. And I think this should bring us great hope today, because I know I'm speaking to a lot of us who are Christ followers, and, and a lot of us have given our lives to Jesus and said, we trust you for our forgiveness. We trust you to be the Lord of our lives, right? But maybe some of us have gotten away from, from that foundational truth and said, I know you're God. I know you're in charge. But today, I'm going to be in charge. Today, I'm going to do this, even though I know I shouldn't. I'm going to click here, even though I know I shouldn't click here, because I'm going to do this moment to start molding my own clay. And we get away from what he's putting us on and what he's leading us to do. And the thing is, when we sin, sin leads to a hardening of the heart. Hebrews 3 talks about that, how sin starts to harden things and the heartful, the deceitfulness of sin. And the thing is, when clay starts to get hard, what happens to it? It starts crumbling. It gets really, really hard to mold. Even Plato, if you leave the lid off of it, this will start to dry. And when it starts to dry, it starts losing the moldability factor. And you have to try and do other processes to it, try and get it soft again. And sin can start to do that in our lives. When we start letting sin take over, we start saying, I'm going to live for this instead of God. What we start doing is we start making our, our pottery that God is working on in our lives, we start making it hard. It starts getting harder to mold. Now, I will not say it's impossible to mold because nothing's impossible with God. But our own sin, our own life can make it hard to work with. So we need to make sure we're, we're living our lives in a way where we're saying, God, I want to be molded. God, I want you to use me. God, I want you to, to form me. And if, if there's a blemish, be, be willing to let God tear down and work that blemish. And that's not always an easy thing to ask because you could really, really like that blemish. Say, this blemish represents this in my life. And I really, really like this. But God's saying, but that's a blemish I got to work on. You've got to let me tear that down. You've got to let me rework it and restore it to what I want it to be. I want us to be the, that soft, moldable plate or that soft, moldable the clay. I don't want stuff, I don't want all the stuff to get in the way of what God's doing. Over time, though, as you see with Plato, lots of stuff happens to it, though, right? If it falls on the floor, then you get dirt and sand and dog hair, and sometimes that stuff doesn't come out of the Plato. It doesn't come out of the clay. But that doesn't mean God still can't work with you. God still can't take the parts of your life that you feel like are broken or brittle or not easy to work with and use those for His glory. We get to be ultimately used for His purpose when we let Him do the we got to keep our hearts soft before God. Don't get brittle. 
Don't be hard to work with. Don't be, don't be broken and say you can't be used for a purpose because he's got that purpose and he wants to use you. I think often when our hearts become the hardest, God has to break us in some of the hardest ways in order to reveal to us that we really do need him. And we see this happen throughout scripture a lot. We see people get broken and God helps put them in check. And we see Jesus encounter people and restore them to what he wanted them to be. And he gets to work on their hearts. Sometimes our hard hearts lead us to, to say phrases like this, that we start believing to our core because we forget the truth of who Jesus is. We start saying things like, I'm too afraid. I'm too afraid. Or I, I can't do that right now, God, because I'm grieving. God, I, I can't live for you. I can't follow what you're doing because I'm just too depressed. God, life right now has me so, so worked up and so beat down that I can't follow you because I'm just too discouraged. But we get to see God work even in those. We get to see God mold whatever it is that, that made you afraid. God can mold you to overcome. Whatever it is that, that has us grieving, God can mold, mold you to work through that to say, hey, you may be grieving, but look at my miracle and majesty that I get to show through this tragedy. He does so much molding even in the hard times. Today, maybe due to sin that, is, that has hardened us or a situation or circumstance that, that's overwhelming you, what you're screaming inside is really, you're, you're screaming, help, I'm broken. Help, I'm broken because this relationship is over. Help, I'm broken because someone I love has recently died or is dying. Help, I'm broken because I have this injury that is just holding me back from doing what I want to do. God, God, help, I'm broken because I've recently been let go from my job. God, God to today, God, I'm, I'm broken because I have a child who's rebelling and nothing I say or do is, is helping getting this child back on track. And God, I just feel broken. If, if any of those things or how you feel or a thing that you have felt, know that there's, I don't, want these, I don't want us to think that those things cause us to take a step away. I want us to use those things and say, this is not a reason to step away from God. This is a reason to step towards God. This is a reason to say, you know what? I am afraid. I am grieving. I am depressed. I am discouraged. God, all these things is why I'm leaning into you now and not why I'm pulling away from you. Because when we give him those things, that's when the molding happens. That's when the blemishes get worked out. That's when we get to see his majesty in our lives because we know we can't do it on our own. Stepping away from God is, is ultimately saying, I've got this. Stepping towards him is saying, I need you. No matter where we have been, no matter where you are, if any of these things apply, know that God is always restoring. No matter where you've been, no matter what you're going through, God is always restoring. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter how much you fail. Let the potter do what he does best. Let him make you into something so beautiful that you can look back and say, I never could have done this. This is the work of God. I'm reminded of a couple examples of Jesus restoring people in the New Testament. The first was a woman caught in adultery. Many of us may know this story, but there's a woman's adultery. A vengeful crowd is hoping to catch Jesus being hypocritical and breaking his own rules and laws. So they catch a woman having adultery, and they bring her to Jesus, and they throw her at his feet. Now, they, they start demanding Jesus. They say, Jesus, this woman was committing adultery. Our laws say that she is now to be stoned until she's to, stoned to death for her crime. What say you, Jesus? They're trying to get him to condemn a woman for doing this. And talk about being marred and being broken. This woman is about to die in an utterly humiliating way. She was caught in the act, drugged before Jesus, and now the crowd is demanding Jesus kill her. Humiliating. Embarrassing. But what does Jesus do? Jesus looks at the woman. He looks at the crowd. And then he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. He doesn't judge her. 
He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't pick up a stone and say, lady, what's wrong with you? And throw the first one. He doesn't do those things. He looks at her and he loves her. He looks at this lowest point of her life and he speaks words of life. In John 8, 10 and 11, he says this, Jesus stood up to her and said, woman, where are they? No one has condemned you. She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Doing this, Jesus restores this woman. He shows her this ultimate grace when, when she was literally staring at death's door, he showed her that he loved her. He showed her that God loved her. And he gave her the ability to turn to him and go and sin no more. Go let yourself now be molded into what God has for you. He took someone that was broken and set her on the path to be fixed. Then we have Peter the denier in Luke 22. This is, I think, one of the best examples in the scripture is uh, Peter, remember this epic failure, right? People will say, Peter comes and they're at the last supper and Jesus just drops this bomb saying, someone's gonna, someone's gonna betray me. Things are going to be bad. This is going to be a really, really bad night. And Peter, you know, very boldly says, I would never, I would never turn against you, God. I would never deny you. I will stand by you forever, Jesus. And Jesus gives him a truth bomb. He says, well, Peter, actually three times before the, the crow comes in the morning, you're going to deny me. Three times. Peter basically calls Jesus crazy, says he's never going to do it. But sure enough, that night, three times, Peter denies Jesus. Jesus is arrested. And while different points of, of his, his arrest have been taken away, at three different points, people come up to Peter and they say, aren't you that guy who was with Jesus? And Peter says, no. Someone else comes, hey, I know you. I, I know you. You're, you're, you're with Jesus, right? You're one of his followers. Peter says, no. Another time they come up to him, he says, you, you're mistaken me. I'm not the guy. And I can only imagine at that point when then he heard the crow go. When, when he heard the, the sound and he knew exactly what Jesus had just said three times, how Peter must have felt so broken. The Bible says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. And then when Jesus comes after the resurrection, you know who doesn't rush to see Jesus? Peter. Again, it, a while, it, it kind of goes unaddressed for a little bit. We see Jesus coming and talking to people, and other people that denied that he was going to come back, he reveals himself to them. But we see Peter... Now, word is getting out now that, that Jesus is back and Jesus is talking to people. And Peter says, you know what? I'm going fishing. He grabs his disciples and he says, I'm not going to confront this. Because, again, a lot of people will say, can you believe he did that? It's like, I can believe he did that. Talk about the, the last conversation he had with Jesus and the last thing he did to Jesus. And John, it says that when he made the third denial, he made eye contact with Jesus in that moment. Wow. That's intense and deep. So I can totally understand Peter saying, I don't even want to talk to him right now. Just the, the shame and humiliation and brokenness that he felt. He goes out to his boat with his disciples and he goes fishing. And guess what he catches all night? Nothing. Is there anything else now? Think, think of how much of a failure Peter must feel like. Like seriously, he, he denies Jesus to Jesus' face right there. Then he goes fishing. This is what he was born to do, right? He's a fisher. And then he doesn't catch anything all night. So now he failed at his good job. This is a low point for this guy. But then Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up on the shore and says, cast your nets on the other side. So Peter does. And the nets are so full of fishes. This is not the first time this has happened to Peter. He knows what's up. He jumps in and he swims to shore and he finally gets to have this moment with Jesus. They're sitting there and they're, they're cooking fish. And Jesus, this is where he asks him, a spoiled, marred, broken, blemished Peter. He asks him three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? 
gently restoring Peter each time. He took this pliable lump of clay, the clay that had some blemishes, and he started working it. It's Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And he gave him a new mission each time. He said, go and tend my sheep. Talk about an amazing love story, right? This is not, Jesus didn't come to shame. He came to put him on a brand new mission. And it was later then that Peter would preach at Pentecost and we would see 3,000 people come to know Christ. Only God, right? But can you imagine if Peter wouldn't have taken that moment to say, all right, Jesus, work on me. Let's work on these blemishes. When he did, he preached and 3,000 people in one day came. That is an only God moment. There's a a quote by A.W. Tozer and it says, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And I think of that, that, you know, allowing us to let God break us down in those moments to then build us back up. That, that line is called the blessing of brokenness. Listen, we're all broken. Only God does the restoring. But before we leave here, leave here today, I want everyone, I hope you all leave here knowing God wants to restore you. It's not just that God can restore you. God wants to restore you. I think uh, yesterday at Lisa's service, we had Pastor Gary deliver a message about God being omnipresent and all-knowing, but he did a great job talking about how it's not just, yeah, God knows everything, so he knows you because you're part of everything. It's he wants to know you. He wants to be part. It's a very personal relationship. God is everywhere. Yes, that doesn't just mean he's with you down the street. He wants to be with you. He chooses to be right there with you. God wants to restore you. God wants to remake you. God wants to remold you. He wants to restore you. This is the loving work of a potter who wants you to be the most magnificent creation he's ever done. He wants that for you. The potter has the power over the clay. Ephesians 2 uses workmanship to describe the work in our lives. It's a word that means poem. God is writing this beautiful poem in your life. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a huge poetry guy. In school, we had limericks for my friend because they were funny and goofy. But whenever we got to the long, deep, meaning poems, I'd be like, I don't get this. So many metaphors, I just don't get it. But I do think what God's doing in our lives is this beautiful poem. And there's a poem that I want to share with you by Myra Brooks called The Touch of a Master's Hand. And it says this. It was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, then two, only two, two dollars, who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loose strings, he played a melody pure and sweet. Then the, the music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, what am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with a bow. A thousand dollars. Who'll make it two? Two thousand. And who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice. And going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried, we do not quite understand. What changed its worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He is going once and going twice. He's going and almost gone. But the master comes and the foolish crowd can never quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. God is that master potter for our lives. He's the one where you can say, I feel broken, I feel marred. 
I feel like I cannot be used anymore. But, but in the master's hands, we become something more valuable than anybody could ever imagine. It's because he is the master. He is the ultimate potter. And we get to be used for his glory. I'd like to invite the worship team back up. Would you stand with me this morning? And I said it before, but you know what my favorite part of Fixer Upper is? I said it before, but I'll say it again. I love the faces. I love the reveal. That's where we get to see the, the old home, the, the, the shambles, and the new home, and the, the rest restoring that has happened. And for the first time, it does the montage, right? Old, new, old, new. I, I love that in our lives, if we, we examine, we can see, hey, this was old, this is new. This is where I was, this is where God has brought me. And when you put those side by side, if you could print a picture in your mind and look that side by side, you get to look and say, only God got to mold this. God got to do this. God made me so much better than anything I could do ever by myself. We get to look at ourselves that way. And that's how the world gets to look at us. The world doesn't get to say, this is your broken self, this is your worthless self. The world gets to say, hey, this is valuable because we see what God has done in your life. We get to be living vessels of the very living God. We get to be excited of what he does. And when we watch the world, our friends, our family, those at school, when they get to see how God shaped us, how God changed us, if they ask, how did this happen? Who did that? We get to say it was him. We always get to point it to him. We get to say, we have the greatest fixer-upper in the whole world. The one who gets to say, are you ready to see your fixer-upper? Are you ready to see your life? This is what I have for you. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that you are a restoring God. I thank you that you take things that are broken. You take things that, that look like they'll never be used again. God, things, things that, you, that the world would even say, that is worthless. And you say, that is so valuable because that's mine. And I'm going to touch it. I'm going to use it. I'm going to make it the most amazing thing ever. God, I pray that in our lives, we give our hearts to you in that aspect. We let you mold our lives. We, we allow ourselves to be that clay. We, we allow ourselves and those blemishes to get broken down and reworked because we know you have something in store for us that's so good. I thank you that you're always restoring and that we're always a part of this process. It's not a destination, God. It's a, it's a journey. And we get to do this journey with you every day. God, we thank you. We love you. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.